All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for gathering us together as family. Thank you for reminding us that we are family, that we will be spending eternity together, fellowshipping as a result of your son's good work on our behalf, Father. Thank you so much for gathering us together this way in grace and love and mercy. Father, we're so appreciative of all the things that you do, even the little things. Uh, the sunshine on our cheeks this morning, uh, the ability to breathe, the ability to just live our lives um, by your grace. May we never become familiar with these things. We pray, Father, for those that are not with us this morning, members of this congregation. We pray that they understand that we're with them in spirit and that we look forward to having them back here to fellowship with. We pray also for those that are still lost in this world, Father. What a state of destitution they're in. We just ask that you humble them and that we might have additional brothers and sisters in Christ for all of eternity. Father, we're most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to make a morning like this a reality for us to celebrate. We just ask for your blessings on this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, part 65 of the deceitfulness of sin. We began on Thursday with the following true statement. Uh, it's impossible to speak of God's sovereignty. We've been doing an awful lot of work on His sovereignty, if you haven't noticed, which includes things like election uh, in terms of salvation proper. Um, but it's impossible. I think the Spirit's really just trying to get us to think the right way. Instead of just learning, you know, this doctrine and that doctrine and this doctrine and that doctrine and trying to fit them together with your own human power, I think he's just saying, just elevate your game. Just elevate your thinking. Think about me. Learn about my character. Understand my nature. And then all of this sort of just precipitates uh, naturally, if you would. Uh, and so we've been doing a lot of work on sovereignty, but here's the point. The, it's impossible to speak of said sovereignty without introducing grace into the equation. Without introducing grace into the equation. Some might misconstrue that sovereignty implies only things like judgment and rulership and mastership and corollaries like that, like uh, obedience and such. In other words, sovereignty is always this sort of sterile, impressive, you know, form of holiness. It's just that Thing. And I think that's a huge mistake. I think that's what happens with us when we allow ourselves to sort of get in the way. So again, some might misconstrue that sovereignty implies only judgment and rulership and corollaries like obedience and such, but, presume, but to presume such things is really to dishonor the holy God of the universe, to presume such things that He's that lopsided that sovereignty uh, can and should be thought of in a vacuum. That's a huge mistake. 
Are those things intrinsic to the discussion about God's sovereignty? You bet. Rulership, mastership, obedience, etc. You bet. But here's the thing that a lot of people miss, I believe, on the topic. God's sovereignty, like every other facet of His character, never functions in the absence of grace. You pick, the, you pick the facet. You pick whatever aspect of God's character you want to focus on today and just know that that facet of Him never functions in the absence of grace. For example, it is gracious to demand obedience from His children. Why? It gives them purpose and direction. You know, it is a mindset. Instead of being an adolescent, you know, punk, oh, here we go with the commands again, how about looking at it this way, that it's gracious to demand obedience from his children because it gives them purpose and direction. And if you look out in the world, is there any such thing anymore? I went to, a gra- I went to Sean's uh, graduation yesterday, and it was, it's a massive confusion. It's almost like people, the whole purpose of these graduations now are to assert something that's not there. To assert that these young children who have been lied to their whole lives have an actual direction. Oh, they're going somewhere. They're heading off. (laughs) A lot of them to college, some to the work, you know, some military, etc. They got a direction, but the whole premise of it is a lie, you understand. I love the fact that God informs me of His commands and His will in my life. Because it gives me purpose, and a real purpose, with real direction. It's gracious to judge us with impeccable integrity. Why? It reveals to us how perfect He is, both in blessing and judgment. So it's gracious to judge us with impeccable integrity because it reveals to us how perfect He is both in blessing and judgment. And it's gracious to ordain our suffering because it leads us to repentance and salvation. Now those are three aspects of God's sovereign will that a lot of people take in all the wrong ways, in the absence of grace. They don't see it as gracious. They see it as a, a, a bit of a taskmaster doing his thing. Peter spoke of God's sovereignty functioning hand in hand with his grace. Go to 1 Peter 5.10. 1 Peter 5.10. And so I believe that's exactly what God the Holy Spirit has been doing with us as of late, he's tying these things together. As most of you know, uh, we are emerging now from a very deep dive, part 65, obviously, but we're almost all the way out. Peter spoke of God's sovereignty functioning hand in hand with his grace. 1 Peter 5.10 After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, do you see it? the God of all grace, who called you. You know what that's part of? His sovereign election. 
And so you have side by side right there, the God of all grace who called you. So you have grace and sovereignty side by side right after the idea of suffering. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Those are promises. To him be dominion. Again, another reckoning, if you would, of God's sovereign rule. To him be dominion, a.k.a. sovereign rule, forever and ever. Amen. So it's that simple. I guess what I'm meant to teach you here is that grace is intrinsic to every last facet of God's essence, including His sovereignty. So we should never think about God in any other terms or in the absence ever of His grace. Because that's how He reaches out to us. That's how He expresses Himself to us. That's how He does and and creates and makes uh, all His promises come true. Whether it's, I promise to bless you, or I promise to curse you. It's by grace that these promises come to bear. And it's a huge mistake, excuse me, it's a huge mistake if and when we forget this one simple principle. That grace is intrinsic to every facet of God's essence, including His sovereignty. So before we head on back to a more sovereignty-bent message, I do want to give you uh, a review of Thursday's message. I gave you from The Pilgrim's Progress. I definitely would recommend that book. I haven't read it in a while. Um, It's by John Bunyan. It's called The Pilgrim's Progress. It's not a very big book at all. Uh, It's not a terrible read. It's actually a very enlightening read. Um, So this is a quote from that on the topic of grace. God's grace is the most incredible and insurmountable truth ever to be revealed to the human heart, which is why God has given us His Holy Spirit to superintend the process of more fully revealing the majesty of the work done on our behalf by our Savior. And he continues in that wonderful work. He teaches us to first cling to and then enables us to adorn with the faith He so graciously supplies, the mercy of God. This mercy has its cause and effect in the work of Jesus on the cross. So, with that said, is it fair to say the following? That grace leaves us speechless? Who would like to come up this morning and teach everything there is to know about God's grace? You will start, I guarantee you, it's, it, it's deer in the headlight time. You don't know where to start, do you? If you're humble, if you're honest, where do you start? Grace leaves us speechless, and I believe that's a good thing. I think if we could get our arms around it, we'd probably get cocky. And then we'd make that huge mistake of thinking we could then control God. 
Grace leaves us speechless. Let's read a verse from that reference passage there, Psalm 8. Uh, go to Psalm 8, verse 4. Psalm 8, verse 4. Grace leaves us speechless. And that's okay. That's a good thing. Psalm 8, verse 4. The only thing that's ever going to balk at that is your arrogance. The fact that you can't control something or someone in your life. Psalm 8, 4. What is man that you take thought of him? And the son of man that you care for him? Have you had those moments? Who, who am I? Who am I that you would even think of me? I certainly didn't earn or deserve what you've done for me. I definitely did not. So why did you think of me? That's the type of um, humility that we should find ourselves, um, I suppose, as the precursor of every prayer. How is it that you thought of me? How is it that I can sit or kneel here before you and speak with you as a father? I'm going to stop talking like that. I'm going to choke up. I won't make it. It's a good question that the psalmist asks, isn't it? What is man that you take thought of him? And the son of man that you care for him. So reflect on that. Do you see the attitude here? Does it remind you of the repentant tax collector in Luke 18.13? The one that beat his chest and said, Have mercy on me, the sinner? Does it then make you wonder how it is so many people take issue with God's sovereignty, which is in fact really an issue with His grace? You see? because they're intrinsic to one another, when someone takes issue with God's sovereignty or some expression of it, say a judgment or suffering or something like that, what they're really taking offense with is His grace as well. So you wonder, how do so many people do that thing? Are you offended by the fact that Satan has spread lies about our Sovereign Father in Heaven, the Lord God. You know, the One who humbled Himself in a way unfathomable to us, becoming a man just to die in our place. Have you ever wondered how people can do that? Dismiss that? Be so dismissive? So uh, disrespectful? Does any of this bother you? I mean, it was God's sovereign will that He sent the Son and His grace that supported Him in His mission, right? Well, that's the sovereign will of God in action. And it's never separated from grace. 
And we can say the same thing in our own lives. We all have our own ministries, right? That's what 1 Corinthians 12 says. A variety of ministries, but one spirit. We're all empowered uniquely to fulfill whatever calling, whatever spiritual gift is in your life. And so God never demands something from us in the absence of grace. He said, here's my sovereign will for you. But, but, sounds like Moses, right? But I'm not a good speaker. Yeah, I know. It's one of the reasons I chose you. Maybe I don't want, uh, you know, uh, the greatest orator in the land. Maybe I, I proved that whole theory wrong with Saul. Maybe I told you to stop looking for those kinds of things in men. Maybe it's my grace that's sufficient. Maybe it's my definition of grace that matters here. If I say I want you to do that by my sovereign will, you can count on the fact that my grace is right there to support that mission. Same with Christ, our prototype. Same with you. That's why it's pretty dishonorable um, to really complain and murmur about our lives, is it not? It's pretty dishonorable. It's pretty dishonorable and disrespectful to balk at His sovereign will in our lives. On a more practical note, have you ever wondered why, even within the ranks of Christianity, some are so much more humble in their walks than others? Have you ever wondered that? My argument is that the humble understand God's grace while others don't. It doesn't mean it can't be learned. It doesn't mean you can't grow up spiritually. It just means that people are at different stages. And instead of trying to force a counterfeit humility or a false humility, really what I believe is that people don't understand God's grace. They've either been misinformed or they've been lied to or they allow their own flesh to balk at things like the sovereignty of God. So my argument is the humble understand God's grace while others don't. It really is that simple. The Bible teaches us all of this if we're willing to listen. So let's do a little listening. Go to Proverbs 11.2. Proverbs 11, verse 2. It's all right there for the taking. I had someone in, my, in this congregation ask, uh, you know, where is everybody? <laughs> where is everybody? And it's just what I said. I mean, it's right there for the taking. But where is everybody? Why is the church like constricted? You know what I'm saying? Why are there so many holes out there that I'm looking at when it's all right there for the taking? It's because people don't understand grace. People think that they can provide themselves a sufficient way outside of the grace of God. This ministry, this gift, is a grace gift to you. And when you don't partake in it, 
You're basically saying, I have made my own provisions, O Sovereign Father. I know you think you know better than I do, but I'm going to take it on myself this day because I know better how to provide my own life with sufficient grace. Proverbs 11.2 When pride comes, then comes what? Dishonor. But with the humble is wisdom. The integrity of the upright will guide them, but the crookedness of the treacherous will destroy them. Well, that's right there for the taking. How about Proverbs 22.4? Proverbs 22, verse 4. Proverbs 22.4. The reward, you see? The reward of humility and the fear of the Lord are riches, honor, and life. Those are pretty lofty things, aren't they? That's the reward of humility and the fear of the Lord. And that, of course, speaks to His sovereignty. Our riches, honor, and life. How about New Testament Scripture? Go to Romans 12.1. Romans 12, verse 1. Romans 12.1 Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, as I've taught you in the past, that means all of you, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. For though, or through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, in other words, be humble, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. So, after reading those passages, we might say that to understand the depths of grace is to understand God Himself, His will, His sovereignty. To understand the depths of grace is to understand God Himself. This implies a definite posture of humility before the sovereign God of the universe. And instead of questioning if God's grace is sufficient or, you know, enough by man's terrible standards, because that's what I see, maybe we do as this week's blog suggested. I I really hope everybody in here read the blog. Um, It was a necessary uh, insertion. The gift of faith is what the blog was called. 
we need, instead of, like Romans uh, 9 said, instead of talking back, instead of questioning the, the holy God of the universe, you know how heinous that is? For real. You know how unbelievably heinous that is? Instead of questioning and challenging Him with arrogance, maybe we do as the blog said. We need to accept what we are given. What are, you, what, what are you standing on in the first place? You're standing on the salvation that He didn't have to give you. And on that, upon that platform, you're going to question God? Shouldn't we be eternally grateful right there and that's it? Wasn't that enough? But we question God and we demand answers where, as the blog described, maybe, just maybe, we're not meant to have those answers. Maybe, just maybe, if we had all those answers that, you know, we demand in our arrogance, we wouldn't handle them. Or we would pervert them like we do everything else. And maybe, just maybe, in that space where God has held things for His own knowledge, uh, we would muck it up if we knew about it. We need to just step back and accept what we are given. For starters, we have the immutability and veracity of the Word of God establishing that God alone has the keys to salvation. That may not be palatable, even within Christian circles nowadays. Because again, Satan has lied. The kingdom of darkness has perpetuated this lie that man is in control. That somehow man is able to turn the tables on God and say, you must save me. That attitude alone already precludes you. Because you have to, in humility, come to God. You have to be humbled. You don't get to make those kinds of demands. But that's almost un-American nowadays. So again, for starters, we have the immutability and veracity of the Word of God establishing that God alone has the keys to salvation. And we need to accept that by faith. If He sets the boundaries of election and free will, then we need to accept them at face value. I was talking, it was funny because, uh, I don't know, DJ was in a particularly uh, spirited mood this morning. Yeah? And he came, he's like, hey, hey, he comes to my office. The blog, the blog, I was thinking. And it was a great point. Go to Hebrews 11.6, I'll share it with you. So again, if God sets the boundaries of election and free will, then we need to accept them at face value. In other words, we need to have faith that the infinite, omniscient God, the righteous, holy God, has it all figured out. Hebrews 11.6 
by faith we accept these things, right? And this is what DJ was so excited about. I'm glad to be able to share it. It wasn't in my notes uh, earlier. Uh, oh, look. Oh, is your head swelling? Oh, I'm sorry, Michael. Probably losing oxygen in there now. <laughs> Hebrews 11:6. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. You see the connection? In other words, it's, it's not pleasant for God when we try to control him, when we try to fill in the blanks that actually aren't there. When he says, I need you to have faith in this chasm that you're struggling with. I need you to have faith. That's what pleases me. What does the Bible say? Without faith, it's impossible to please him. Do you see the connection? It's magnificent. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. So what does this mean when we try to artificially fill in the blanks rather than exercise faith? Well, according to Hebrews 11.6, God is not pleased. He's very pleased with your faith. You need to accept that. You don't, he doesn't give you all the answers. And He did it on purpose. And it doesn't matter if you struggle with something like election, free will. And then one of the corollaries, well, if we're elected and God's the only one who saves, then why even the Great Commission? These things come into thought as well. On that front, you know what I say? The same thing I said in the blog. What does God tell you to do? Go out to the corners of the earth and spread the good news. But, but, no buts. You, I worry about who I'm going to save. You do your job. It's like anybody ever manage somebody that all they do is question you instead of actually doing the work? They spend all their time just questioning the authority and no work ever gets done? Yeah, it's like that. Stop questioning. I don't have time to explain to you why. It'd be like the, the new hire at, say, I used to work at Cisco Systems, 80,000 people. It'd be like the new college grad coming in the front door and running up to who was John Chambers at the time, the CEO, and say, before I do anything, sir, explain to me why you chose this route for the company. <laughs> Wait a minute, what? Do you really think I have that time? To, those things you don't need to know. Get to work. Get to work. That's what's pleasing to me. Have faith that I'm leading the ship well. And then you elevate that entire conversation to God, and it's perfect. And it's a, even a greater offense when one of us does it to him. <clears throat> so God is not pleased when we do not exercise faith. This is something I believe Mr. John Bunyan understood. Again, another quote from that book, The Pilgrim's Progress, up here on the board. This hill, though high I covet ascend, the difficulty will not me offend, for I perceive the way of life lies here. Come pluck up heart, let's neither faint nor fear. Better though difficult, the right way to go, than wrong though easy, where the end is woe. As the Spirit mentioned on Thursday, the crux of that discussion there is that there's no other way to approach God except in humility. 
when we realize the immensity of who he is, our only option is to prostrate ourselves and pray for mercy. That's the only real option we have, the only humble option. Now, with that in tow, there's one other area that needs repeating here this morning, and I'll borrow from some divine wisdom from a few recent series titled, Remember, What is, you fill in the blanks, good, repentance, and who gets to define it? I hope you remember that theme. In those series, we were taught that it is God alone that has the sovereign right to define terms such as good and repentance and such. And I gave you the funny example on Thursday of saving someone who was about to walk off a cliff by, you know, clotheslining them or something. Or maybe you tackle them before they walk into traffic. And while they're cursing you, you're saying, I just saved them. And that's a good thing. So who gets to define good? I'm going to say, I'm going to just go on a limb and say the holy God of the universe who sees the entire parade all at once, the entire work of salvation, the entire drudgery of mankind all at once. I'm going to say he knows exactly what he's doing. And so it's God alone that should be able to define what's good. Even if, you know, he knocks you down and you nick your knee and you complain at the one who did it to save your life. The one whose son was so offensive that they called him the stumbling block. I'm going to go out on a limb and say, you know what? Go ahead, you can kill him. But that doesn't change a damn thing. This is goodness incarnate. As an indictment to mankind, you killed him. That's how much we like good in this world. Thank you very much. I prefer my own good. And I want to set my own boundaries and my own definitions. I'll just call Mr. Webster or Oxford. We'll set our own boundaries, thank you very much, with a little help from the kingdom of darkness. And we'll pervert the whole game. We'll create a whole economy around a different good, an ungodly good. And we'll teach our little children. And then we'll graduate them from high schools under the premise of lie upon lie upon lie, as if they'd done a good thing to graduate in the absence of any faith in Christ Jesus. On their way to hell, we pat them on the backs and say, bravo, bravo. And we call it good. God alone gets to define what good is and repentance and such. That's what we learned in that series. And arguably the biggest definition is with love. Where are we if we don't understand love? Love might be the greatest perversion of all. Right alongside grace. I don't know why I think this way. Maybe I'm wrong in thinking this way, but my heart goes out to all the young ladies. For some reason, they read those romance novels and have this awful idea about love. And they're tricked into 
ungodly situations by credence who take their virtue because they say they love them. It's a big old lie. Love is the worst. It's the most attacked. So I throw this out there for you. Who gets to define love? 1 John 4, 8 reads this way, The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And love is good, because God is good. When the Word of God defines love, it is defining God Himself. When the Word of God defines love, it is defining God Himself. It only takes a cursory look at the world today to realize that love is just about the most perverted topic of all. And so it makes perfect sense that the most rudimentary expression of love, namely grace, is perverted also. Hence, our principle from this past week up here on the board, God's grace God's grace is not man's. We need to wipe that out. Oh, it's gracious to do this. Oh, it's gracious to do that. Man defines graciousness along the same vein as tolerance and political correctness. For example, it's wrong to be offensive or to make someone stumble, even if it's over the truth. You know, the everyone gets a trophy thing. Hey, listen, kid, you, you suck at soccer. Maybe that should be a trophy. You suck the most. Is that wrong? Why is, it, why, why is that not? No, for real. Why can't we set the bottom wrong? Why can't we be honest with a kid? You're not Pele. No, we've got to give him a trophy and, and, and tell him he's Pele Jr. when he's, he, I'm sorry to use the word sucks, but you know what I mean. He stinks. He's not good. Why don't we just tell him the truth so he can run off and find what he is good at? No, for real. Why is that? Isn't that a good thing? To hurt his feelings in the moment so that he can adjust or she can adjust and go find your real purpose in life. See? I'm the monster, right? Did you seriously just say they should have a trophy for the most suckiest? I kind of did. But my heart is good. That's what true love looks like. I don't want to lie to a kid. What's more loving? To tell them the truth or to lie to them? I don't want to lie to people. If that stings, that's between you and the Lord. I'm not saying I have the best tact. Maybe you could work on a better tact than mine. <laughs> I live in a cave, folks, so give me a little grace. But you get the point. It's more loving to tell someone the truth even when it hurts. But it's not politically correct anymore. And so we've been shackled. God defines grace as providing a way to salvation regardless if it is disagreeable to human sensibilities. We're not satisfied. We can't control God. We don't think His grace is sufficient. We think the way should be broader that leads to life. Who are we? Who are you, O oh man, to question? Who I'm willing to save? 
And just as a side note, when I state salvation in that last sentence on the board, I mean any form of salvation or deliverance, which really brings into thought believers as well. God defines grace in our lives as well, regardless of how He chooses to sanctify us by grace. We don't get what we want. What do we do? Complain, murmur. Uh, we go to Him in prayer and thank God for His Holy Spirit who intercedes. So, 65 parts later, the Spirit's done the honorable task of encapsulating the gist of this series in a very simple, recurring point. And this has been a point we've been ending on all week, really. The simple definition for sin. Sin is any lack of conformity to God's will. If God's sovereign, we have to respect His will. Any lack of conformity to God's will, whether expressed actively or passively, whether you're doing something you're not supposed to be doing or you're not doing something you're supposed to be doing. Let's put it that way. If it's not in accordance with God's will, then it's a sin. And we have to accept that. So, just imagine we're coming out of this mine shaft now. Our series is titled The Deceitfulness of Sin. And from day one, the emphasis has been on deceitfulness. This hasn't been a dissertation on sin. Sin, for all intents and purposes, is pretty much what's on the board. Now, I know the Bible goes into much deeper detail uh, in the nuances of it and what have you. But for our purposes in this series, it's been about that subtlety of sin, the deceitfulness of sin, the thing that allows it to exist in our lives without detection sometimes. That's been the emphasis of our series. It's been on the deceitfulness of sin and as we've learned, once we're saved, the work is not done. There's still a lot of work left to do. Why? Because just about every area of our lives is exposed to lies. Everyone in here grew up with some lies in their soul before they were even saved. And they become our doctrines, though false. And they become the things that we live by, though they're false. And so we have to, as it said in Romans 12, our minds have to be transformed so that we can be set free. Because just about every area of our lives is exposed to lies. And it's not like, okay, that's it, that's the finite box that we got under the age of five, those are all the lies. No, uh We grow up and we're exposed to even more lies and even more lies, and even more lies. And we're, accept, we're expected to accept them at face value. But I refuse, and you should too. If it's not in this good book, I really don't want to hear it. I'm not interested anymore. Every area of our lives is exposed to lies. The kingdom of darkness is relentless, leaving no stones unturned in our lives. Hence Peter's good counsel. Go to 1 Peter 5.5. 5. We're going to dovetail with where we were before. Going forward a little bit. Hey, can you kill the mic just for a moment?
Okay, let me know if I've got anything embarrassing going on in my face. <laughs> you, probably, you probably wouldn't even tell me. You'd just laugh at me the whole time. <laughs> First Peter 5, 5. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you at the proper time. You see a whole lot going on there, don't you? Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, for He is sovereign, that He may exalt you at the proper time. Casting all your anxiety on Him, because He cares for you. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And by the way, that is why we are on part 65. Because of that very truth. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But, and this is why you've been taught, resist him. This is why we learn about the deceitfulness of sin. So that you're equipped. That's my job. Ephesians 4, 11 and 12. For the equipping of the saints. For the work of service. All the Ephesians 6, the, the armor. The shield of faith. All that good stuff. This is how we resist him. Resist him. Firm in your faith. Firm in your faith. Not your speculations, not your fill-in-the-blank exercises, your faith. And that, again, Hebrews 11.6, is pleasing to God, right? When you resist Him, when you put your faith out front, and you're able to resist Him, that brings glory to God, and that's why He's pleased by it. But resist Him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Here's where we dovetail with um, our previous... Oh, hold on a second. It's my, new, uh, it's my new app. It keeps skipping on me. Here's where we dovetail with the passage we began this morning with, verse 10. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. So as we begin with this morning, God's grace is inseparable from His sovereignty. We just saw that again. His grace is inseparable from His sovereignty. Compared to living for the things of this world, Living in and for God's grace is indescribably superior in every way. So I want to grab, again, we're coming out of this deep dive now. I want to grab some more pertinent perspective. Go to 2 Timothy 3, verse 1. Why 65 parts just to date? Well, this is what we're seeing on our way out of this deep dive. 2 Timothy 3, verse 1. I apologize for those little 
brief interruptions, I'm having to retrain my own body up here to move the cursor a different way. I keep doing it the old way and it's screwing me up. 2 Timothy 3, verse 1. But realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, avoid such men as these. Okay, avoid such men as these. In other words, the sons of disobedience. Should you be spending all your time with them? Should you be a friend of the world? That's between you and the Lord. What do you see in Holy Scripture? It literally says, avoid such men as these. Well, what do you think? What do you think the sovereign will of God is in that situation in your life? Does He want you to spend time with a ship of fools? Or does He want you to spend time with members of the faith? Does He want you to spend time with people that are going to rob you and disgrace your so-called faith? Or does He want you to spend time with people who are going to build your faith up? Avoid such men as these. Fellowship with these. Verse 6. For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men of depraved mind rejected in regard to the faith. Up here on the board on that topic. Men of depraved mind, they are those who, quote, oppose the truth. You know anybody like that? I do. I would say the vast majority of people I run into during the day are opposed to the truth. It isn't until, honestly, it isn't until I either go home to my house or I come to church. Those two places are really sanctified, if you would, in terms of fellowship, in terms of people who aren't opposed to the truth. But outside of that, it's a crapshoot. It's usually just the opposite. It's usually everybody who's opposed to the truth. So, men of depraved mind, you know anyone like that? They are those who oppose the truth. Of course, in context, we are considering this as a habit, because trust me, you can come to my house today, it's probably going to be yours truly that's doing something that ain't exactly, you know, in accordance with the will of God. I'm, I mess up. But that's not my habit. My heart is right. And if you're a believer, your heart is right. So in context, we are considering this as a habit, not when a believer fails and sins. The context here is to establish that sin opposes truth by its very nature. By its very nature, and as I've been teaching all along in this series, if a person, if, that's, if they're still under the dominion of sin, that is literally what controls them. 
There is no other option for that individual. They are of a depraved mind. Choose your friends wisely. Again, the context here is to establish that sin opposes truth by nature. I believe that if you oppose the truth as a general rule of life, there's no way you can actually be a member of God's family. If that's your general rule of life, there is no way that you can actually be a member of God's family. On the other hand, sometimes we believers just need a little wake-up call. For some of you, that might be this morning. This is something that Peter had to learn the hard way. Go to Mark 8.32. Mark 8.32. Peter had to learn the hard way. Mark 8.32. And he was stating the matter plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. That just makes you giggle, doesn't it? I mean, how do you do that? How do you get to a point where you think you can rebuke the Lord? <laughs> but he did. Turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. Ow! For you are not setting your mind on God's interests, in other words, the sovereign will of God, but man's. You see, Peter would have defined in that moment, fair enough, that what he was doing was, quote, good. He was trying to ultimately, in his actions, thwart Christ making his way to the cross. Could there be a bigger error? (laughs) Of course he didn't want to see his Lord in agony and pain. But that's man's mind. It's like a parent who sees their child when they get the, you got the most suckiest award, in pain and suffering, if that thing ever existed. But if it was true, you know what? It's good. Because now my kid's not confused anymore. Good, you're going to laugh. Joey's about ready to burst in the seams. Right? Because he and I had a couple conversations like that. As wonderful as a young man as he is, he just wasn't a great soccer player. I didn't say, I didn't give him any awards, but I was honest. Right? And he's like, yep. Yes, you were, Dad. <laughs> but I didn't call him Satan. Maybe under my breath a couple of times. <laughs> I'm just kidding. It's good. Peter's mind, I'm doing a good thing here. Jesus calls him Satan. How, how much of a clash was that in his soul in that moment? Tough lesson, but certainly one we've all had impressed upon our own lives throughout this amazing series titled The Deceitfulness of Sin. Now, before we finish up this series, I want to complete a thought that's been percolating up in our studies for a while now in this series want to add some connective tissue between this series and the Gospel Reload. So concentrate. <clears throat> Think about everything we've learned in this series. Think about the deceitfulness, the emphasis of deceitfulness. 
and that the very fact that our that deceitfulness exists in us because we still have that the remnants of sin that nature in us in our bodies the human flesh can stretch itself pretty darn far it's really good at doing this thing stretching itself making itself look the part without ever really committing. You know how that goes. Looking the part, you know, like when you're a kid, mom says apologize to your sister, and you're like, I'm so sorry. And under your breath, they're like, I'm going to choke you out later. (laughs) I'm so sorry. See, mom? Your heart's not in it. The human flesh can stretch itself pretty darn far. So far that it is able to counterfeit the fruit of the Spirit even. And under the premise of the deceitfulness of sin, the flesh is able to fool everyone around it and even its host. This is why Jesus spoke the parable of parables in order to train us to look for persistent, habitual, godly fruit. Go to Mark 4.3. Mark 4, verse 3. This is what many would call the parable of parables. It's the baseline parable for all the other ones. All the other ones um, are derivatives of this one. Mark 4, 3. Listen to this. Behold, the sower went out to sow. As he was sowing, some seed fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate it up. Other seed fell on the rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of soil. And after the sun had risen, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. Looked good for a while, in other words. But once the heat of life came, it withered away. Up here on the board... This is the deceitfulness of sin, my friends. Without saving faith, the gospel seed ultimately has no root system and therefore withers away. Even though the flesh was convinced it could produce good fruit in the absence of godly faith. Verse 7, Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. Up here on the board more on the deceitfulness of sin. Without saving faith, the gospel seed gets choked out by pressure, ultimately yielding no crop, no godly fruit, even though the flesh counterfeited faith at the outset. What we know to be true is that Jesus made a point of saying that only, only good and fertile soil ever bears good fruit, and that is the hallmark of a true believer. Verse 8, Other seeds fell into the good soil. And who gets to decide who, what the good soil is? Man or God? Who gets to decide good? God does. God does. You don't get to say that the other soils were good at all. He said, this is the good soil. This is where I bear fruit. 
This is the soil that brings glory to me. These are my children. Not the pretenders, not the phonies, not the ones who, you know, say their apology to their sister, but their heart is war. Not those people, not those ones who oppose the truth, but on the outside play a good game. This is Jesus' words. Others fell, see, other seeds fell into the good soil. And as they grew up and increased, they yielded a crop, and it produced 30, 60, and 100-fold. Jesus then amplified the fact that this parable of parables was for believers alone. Mark 4, verse 9. And he was saying, He who has ears to hear, a.k.a. believers only, let him hear. I would imagine in many cases people who cannot um, decipher, cannot understand this parable of parables, maybe they have a problem. Maybe they're part of the crew that redefines good. Say, well, this is kind of good too. Maybe they're just saved and they never bear any fruit. That's a lie from the pit of hell. Don't know. That's between them and the Lord. But I think it's entirely possible. Very accommodating, isn't it? He was saying, he who has ears to hear, in other words, believers, let him hear. Again, this conversation was between the Lord and his personal sheep. A similar conversation occurred between one of his under-shepherds, Paul, and his sheep years later. But if you're paying attention, you know that the message is the same. It is meant for believers only. As we've noted over the course of this series, sanctification is a grace gift given to believers only. Sadly, there seem to be a lot of so-called Christians out there that suppose sanctification, suppose they have it, but are merely attempting to perfect holiness in the absence of the fear of God. In other words, I'm going to sanctify myself even though I'm opposed to you. This echoes back to our current work on God's sovereignty, of course. Holy Scripture has something to say about this up here on the board. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 1. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. You will not be sanctified in the absence of that. God only sanctifies those He chooses to save, a.k.a. the elect. Someone who has placed themselves on a course of self-sanctification will not be sanctified by God. They may very well be quite deceived, but nonetheless, they will remain unsaved on this pathway best described as self-righteousness. This is something the Spirit highlighted in our recent messages, namely that only God is able to sanctify us, whether positionally, experientially, or even ultimately. Again, 
Go to first. Uh, go to First Corinthians one two. I'll pick a spot to close here shortly as we have uh, communion service this morning. First Corinthians one verse two. Who chooses the elect? Who calls the elect? Who saves the elect? 1 Corinthians 1, 2. To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, in other words, you're sanctified because you're called. Remember, no one comes to the Father unless He draws them. That's the calling, if you would. To those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Go to verse 30. Verse 30. It's interesting. You have both sides of the election uh, in free will issue there, but I'll leave that for now. Verse 30. But by His doing, you are in Christ Jesus. By whose doing? His doing. You are in Christ Jesus, who became to, you, to us wisdom from God in righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. This last statement is sort of like a summary statement for we believers in Christ. While those whose faith is being scorched or withering away, Mark 4, 5, and 6, Ours is rock solid because it exists as a function of God's grace. All right. Getting back to our main topic now. I promise I'm going to close here in a moment. You just need this perspective before we leave this series. Sin attempts to usurp the grace of God by robbing the credit for accomplishing good things in time. How do you do that? Well, the easiest way is to redefine what good is, as I've taught you. But that is the very nature of sin. It attempts to usurp the grace of God by robbing the credit for accomplishing good things in time. As per our series title, The Deceitfulness of Sin, it's all about deceitfulness. So we arrive at our final slide in this series. And I'm not going to be able to cover it all, but this is the final slide that sin lies to us, it is a liar. Just put that into perspective. Even take in some of those thoughts you had about, you know, being friends with the world. If, if they're of the world, you know what they are? They're a liar. And liars can only do what they're built to do. Lie. They also don't have the love of God. And so their love is a selfish love, which means they'll lie to you, even say, I love you, but it's just an ungodly type of love. It's not God's love. It's the only love they know, which is, as I've taught you, a selfish love, which is why as soon as you mess up, they're gone. Those are called fair-weather friends. You ever notice that? Friends with the world, any of you? As soon as you dip below the standard, they're gone. There's no grace in their heart. There's no real love in their heart because they're selfish lovers. For as long as you can uphold something good in their life, they'll keep you around. 
But as soon as you fall below the watermark, whatever it is for them, you're out. You stop getting phone calls. <laughs> they stop returning calls. They stop having any interest in you whatsoever. Some of you are probably thinking about some bad relationships right now. But that is exactly what we are to expect from sin. Sin is a liar. It's unholy. It's opposed to truth. It mixes truth with lies for the purpose of deceiving us into thinking and doing things antagonistic to the will of God. We mustn't think of sin as merely a result. And we'll look at these passages uh, next time around. We mustn't think of sin as merely a result, but also a magnetic force, an influencer, a deceiver. In other words, don't just think of sin as that thing you did yesterday. Oh yeah, I sinned. I can point to it. I sinned right there, and that's sin. Mm-mm. Uh-uh. You have a sin nature in you. It's like a magnet drawing you away from God. And since the world, many people in the world have that same sin, people in the world will try to draw you away from God. That's why still to this day, for as long as I stand behind a pulpit, I think, and there'd be a lot of retroactive catching up to do, usually the number one draw outside of yourself is the opposite sex. I mean, that, that's head and shoulders above all the other ones that I've noted in my tenure as a pastor, watching my sheep and the ones who aren't here anymore. It's usually because someone from the opposite sex, somehow, some, and I'm talking about wives or husbands even, ones that are already in their lives, not just, you know, newfound love. <laughs> that one's big too, but I'm talking about, I've had people tell me they can't, men, well, males, not one, multiple. I can't go there anymore. My wife will leave me. Are you, are you serious? I mean, this is a personal conversation, too. It's not like, you know, in passing. I can't go there anymore. My wife will leave me. You know, I, I want to jump through the phone and be like, dude, I can't even say what I'm thinking. See DJ after. I'm sure he understands. I cannot say what I'm thinking because it's, it's bad. But I have such a distaste for wimpy men. It makes me sick. You can't come to church because of your wife? Why don't you come to church? I'll give you a skirt. And you can sit there in your skirt. But at least you're here. All right, he's reeling me in. Very little tolerance for that stuff. I hate sin. Do you hate sin? You hate it in yourself? It's ugly. It's disgusting. It's gross, isn't it? Oh, it's so, I'm so, oh. I can't wait till heaven. Amen? All right, on that note, let's, let's have some communion.
Thank you, gentlemen. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me, in remembrance of the person of Jesus Christ. Let's eat the bread. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink the cup in remembrance of his work. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us this opportunity to commune with you in this special way, to fellowship with you, to dine on the very bread of life, Father, to capstone it with communion service. Father, we're so very grateful for all that you've done for us through your Son, our beloved Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you for keeping things real. Thank you for keeping them direct. And thank you for loving us. We just ask for your blessings as we take the things we've learned back to our homes and our families and our friends and as lights in the world to a world that's just fading away. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen.